starting a brand new series today entitled Broken People, Big God. And we are going to kind of take a, a raw and honest look at, at different characters throughout the Bible, uh, some of them that you'll know. And uh, I, I think sometimes we talk about characters in the Bible, specifically as we talk about what, what are considered heroes of the faith. Here's what we kind of do is, is we kind of say, hey, these people were righteous, and the conclusion is be more like them, right? So if you look at characters like the one we're going to look at like today, like Noah, it's like, hey, Noah, Genesis 6 says it. He was righteous and blameless. And so let's be more faithful like Noah, more courageous like Noah. And we don't read beyond the rainbow and read parts like we're going to read today and see sort of the griminess of Noah's life. And, and so we just kind of say be like Noah, but that doesn't really compute if you actually read the Bible. And so what we want to do today and throughout this series is, is really dig into their story from Scripture, not culture, not movies, not a flannel graph. And we want to see how are these people really just broken people just like us, but they have a big God who moves in and through them, right? So that's what we're going to do today. We are looking at the life of Noah, and we're going to be in Genesis chapter 8. So follow along with me. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one under the chair in front of you. You can pull it up on your phone. Genesis, first book of the Bible, go to chapter 8. Uh, if you follow along with us, we're going to skip around, try to get a, a big overview of Noah's life, but we'll start in chapter 8. And I think with, with Noah, I would imagine all of you, to some extent, know a little bit about Noah's life. You know, hey, there was a boat, there were some animals like peeking out the window, there, there was a flood, and there was a rainbow. And that's kind of what you know about Noah, but we're going to dig a little bit deeper and see what can we learn about Noah's even brokenness and how a big God used him and how he can use us. So, the big picture of where we're headed, if you do take notes, is this. I'm going to give you the three points right off the top today. We're talking about the crisis, the covenant, and get ready for the crazy. It's going to be fun. The crisis is where we're going to start out with Genesis chapter 8. I'm going to read a little bit, try to give you some context. Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 1, it says this. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. Now I want to pause just right there and, and give you some context. Some of you who know the story of the flood a little bit are going to say, hey, 150 days, like I thought it was 40 days. That was just the rain. You see it here, like there's fountains of the deep. So water, if you can picture it, is coming up. As it's rained for 40 days, the flood is still rising. And it did so, it tells us, for 150 days. And then we see verse 4. It says, in the seventh month... And on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, don't miss that detail, right? For some of us, the story of Noah and the flood is like a fairy tale, and we're kind of like, we get cute children's stories, and we paint it on nursery walls about God destroying the earth. <laughs> I don't know why we do that, but we do. And it could kind of seem like just another fairy tale. But, but notice, do you see anywhere in that story, once upon a time? No. You see what? The 17th day of the seventh month, very exact, very specific. You see an exact location. You see the mountains of Ararat. That's in modern day Turkey. So this is historical narrative, not fairy tale. 
Okay, so we see that just as we read closely in the text. Verse five, look at that verse with me. It says, the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So here's, here's where we are in the story of Noah. The, the, the flood is slowly coming to an end, but we kind of get this picture of what it was like to be on that boat. And as scholars have looked at this, and Scripture gives us a lot of detail, as, as, and as, as they have done the math of that detail, what we see is Noah and his family, eight people, and all of these animals, they were on this boat for 370 days, a little over a year. And I think as we look at it like a fairy tale and we just kind of move uh, past the flood and towards the rainbow, we might miss the darkness of this moment. We might miss the crisis of this moment. Man, just try to imagine what it must have been like to be on a cruise ship, basically, with no amenities that doubles as a zoo. That's the ark, right? Have you ever been to a zoo? What does it smell like? That's an open air. This is enclosed in a boat. I don't know if you ask honest questions when you read scripture. I do. I'm like, what did they do with the poop? Like, did they have a process to get it? I don't even know what that was like. Like, I just imagine the smells after 370 days enclosed in a boat. Imagine the drama. Like, I have a family of five, and we take a trip to California for six hours, and there is drama. Right? Amen, parents? Right? 370 days, eight people in a zoo in a boat. You think there was some drama? Amen. Right? Imagine what that must have been like. Imagine the sickness. And they didn't have like Tylenol or ibuprofen or Claritin D. Just They were sick, right? Imagine how scary it must have been when the waters just keep rising and keep rising and everybody in Noah's family is like, Noah, did you really hear from God? Are we ever, like, are we there yet? Are we ever going to get off this boat? Imagine the fears of maybe God has forgotten us. It's a crisis. Listen, I know, I know that's a crisis, but I think the elephant in the room and maybe the crisis you're thinking about is the crisis that caused the flood. Like, what? Tim, okay, that's, that sounds like a crisis, but... What about the crisis that caused the flood? Like, why do we have a flood to even begin with? Like, we just sing about God, God, his love is pursuing us relentlessly. And we just sing about his foundation that, that is firm and will not be shaken. And yet it seems like God intentionally shook the world. What do we do with that? And so I want to talk about that for just a brief moment. What, what do we do with the flood in general? Maybe you've had that question. We're going to try to answer that question for you just briefly this morning. I'm going to give you two things that we see with the flood, the patience of God and the seriousness of sin. Some of you are thinking, Tim, I don't see the patience of God. That's how we're going to talk about it, okay? First thing, patience of God. We see 1 Peter 3, verse 20. It says this, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. See, here's what you need to know. In Genesis 6, verse 5, we see this picture of sin. And it's not a pretty picture of sin. It's not mistakes and regrets. It is deep, deep depravity. I'm going to read it for you. Here's what it says. It says, the Lord saw, notice these words. Each word is really important. The Lord saw the wickedness of man, not regrets, not mistakes, wickedness of man, and it was great 
not small, in the earth. And every intention, notice this detail, every intention, every thought of his heart was only evil continually. That was the landscape at this time. And it was across the human race, so much so that that God goes on to tell Noah, hey, so this is what I am forced to do. I am going to wipe that off the face of this earth. And I I think as we, we see that, we're like, well, Tim, where's the patience? God gave them a warning. God didn't just kill them instantly. You see, many times, even in our children's stories, which is kind of crazy, what we think is, hey, there were some bad people. Noah was good. God saved Noah. God destroyed all the bad people. And we think about like it happened like that. But it didn't. God was patient. That's what Peter's saying. God's, God's patient. We look at, even just scholars look at the timeline of to build an ark like this and even taking some of the great detail that scripture gives us. And we think maybe it took 50 to 75 years to build the ark. So you have this warning, everything's depraved, everyone is evil, even in their intentions, thoughts, and heart. It's really bad. Noah, I am God, I am holy, I am going to destroy that. Otherwise, it will destroy you and everyone around you because sin does that. And yet he doesn't destroy it right then. He's patient. And Noah builds a boat. Noah proclaims God and calls people to repentance, and no one but his family does. We, we see the patience of God through the flood, but we also see the seriousness of sin. You see, here's the reality for many of us in regard to sin. We tend to downplay sin, not destroy it. Some of you, with your sin, you, you may think of it in terms of morality, right? Like the, when you think of sin, you think of like these things that you do that you shouldn't do or these things that you should do, but you, you fail to do. And, and we've talked about this before that we tend, we, we tend to think like sin's this issue of morality, but when God sees sin, he sees it as an issue of identity, You see, it starts at the beginning of the book of Genesis when when people are called to image their creator, to love God supremely, to worship him fully, to be his image bearers in all of the earth, to image the creator over and above all of creation. And that when we sin, what we are doing in our pride, lust, gossip, greed, religiosity, what we are doing when we sin is Romans chapter one. We're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And we are now imaging creation over and above creator. Sin isn't just an issue of morality. It's an issue of identity. Serious. And so the question right off the top today is, do you downplay sin or do you destroy it like God? God's calling you to destroy your sin before it destroys you and everybody else around you. Do you downplay it? Do you downplay like gossip and just say, no, 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 Tim, it's gossip. That's a little strong. Like I just kind of speak my mind. I'm just extrovert. I just say what I think. And I say it to like seven other people instead of the person that is involved. But you know, it's not gossip. That's a little strong. Do you downplay your sin? Do you, do you say, maybe you thought in your mind, I, adultery, like, I mean, I, I don't do that. Like, I don't cheat on my wife. I mean, I just, I, do I have fantasies and thoughts and flirtations? Like, that's just, that, I mean, everybody has that, right? Do you, do you downplay sin or do you destroy it? That's what the flood shows us. 
God destroys sin. How do you deal with sin? Are you desperate? Think about your sin right now. Are you desperate for God in the midst of your sin? Did you know that you are hopeless in your sin without God? You can't white knuckle it. You can't do enough good things to cover it up. You are hopeless and desperate without, are you desperate? When you sing songs, when you come into church, when you open your Bible, are you desperate? God, I'm I'm sinful. I need you. In my religious pride, I'm sinful. I need you. In all my good works, I need you. Are you desperate for God because you're hopeless without him in the midst of your sin? That is why chapter 8, verse 1, is a blessing, is hopeful, Because it starts out, chapter 8, verse 1 starts out with this phrase, but God. Some of you are like, Tim, when's the good news start today? I came to church wanting some good news. Here's the good news, but God. It's similar to but God in Ephesians chapter 2. We get a pretty dark picture of who we are. Scripture talks about our sin and it says we are dead in sin that we are lifeless and cold because of our sin. It talks about us as children of wrath, but then you get this glorious transition of, but God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus, amen? That's an amazing but God. We have a but God here. That three years ago, we had a, a lady in our church, actually a wife of an elder, and on a Saturday, we got a text message, a, a group text that, that Savannah had been in a car accident. Please pray. And she was pregnant. And so, hey, we, they're going to the hospital. It was a bad accident. And we want to make sure everything's okay. And it was a group text Saturday night, getting ready for Sunday. And so everybody on our team, everybody's like praying for Savannah, praying for protection over her baby. And uh, her mother-in-law, who was communicating with us, gave us an update later in the night. And she said, hey, thank you so much for praying. She said in all caps, she wrote, but God, Savannah's okay and the baby is fine, but God. And we celebrated God's provision. And two weeks ago, little Millie, that baby that was in her womb was over at my house diving in our pool at two years old. But God, amen. That's what's happening. That's what comes after the flood. We see, but God, that's what happens in your life as we look at this flood and we learn about Noah. So our second point, we move beyond the crisis. We move to the covenant of God. Here we see that in Genesis 9. Flip over a page with me in your Bible. Genesis chapter 9, 8 through 13. We see this covenant of God. It says this, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. Notice the repetition here. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
God is picking back up a speech that started earlier of a covenant he's making with Noah, with with all generations, that, that he's moving past the flood to the promises of God. If you don't know what that word means, covenant literally means sacred promise. And so God is making a sacred promise with Noah that we still benefit from, future generations. And it's primarily around two areas. It's, it's around purpose and protection. See, Genesis 9, verse 1, God makes this covenant with Noah, and he says specifically, hey, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. What does that sound like? The very beginning with Adam and Eve. That's the covenant he made with them. Be fruitful and multiply. Image me in all of the earth. That's your purpose. And could you imagine that Noah maybe forgot that that was their purpose through the flood? Could you imagine that maybe Noah thought, okay, that was their purpose. Maybe we royally screwed this up and we no longer have that purpose. And God right on time reminds them, no, this is still the game plan. This is still what you're called to do and carry out. This is your purpose. Image me, multiply that out throughout the earth. But he also gives them protection. Did you notice? Never again will I do this. When you see phrases or words repeated in scripture, that's important. Never again, never again. God makes this sacred promise in the midst of their crisis. But he doesn't just say this. He gives a sign about it, right? He gives the the rainbow. This sign to point us back to that sacred promise. And and how many of you know signs are important? If you're married in this room, you have a sign on your finger, the bling that you are sporting right now, that is a sign of a sacred promise, right? So that on your good days in your marriage, that you might look down at your ring finger and you might look at your spouse and be reminded of the sacred promise that comes with this sign. And you might say, babe, I love you. Babe, let's, when are we going on a date? That you might right now, spouses, you can do this. That you might grab your spouse's hand and hold it a little bit tighter as you think about what you committed to on your wedding day. But also on the bad days, that you would look at your sign. The days where you come home after work and she doesn't ask you how it went. The days where you're not even talking in your marriage because there's just a thick, like it's in the air, tension, conflict. The days where sexual intimacy is nowhere to be found, the days where financial difficulty is plaguing you, the days where you're talking or at least thinking about divorce. It's in those days that you look at the sign and you're reminded of the sacred promise between you and your spouse, but also before God that he's still with your marriage and he still has a plan for your life. Signs are important, amen? They remind us of the sacred promise. God is so faithful, he doesn't just give us a sacred promise, he gives us a sign of that sacred promise so that when you doubt, when you're having a great day, victories and failures, you can be reminded you have a faithful God, amen? That's what you're getting in the midst of the flood. We have the crisis of the flood, but we have the covenant of God. You need to know that. You need to walk in that, rest in that, good days and bad days. Here's the last thing, and here's where it gets really fun. The crazy. You guys ready for the crazy? All right, we're going to do it either way. Genesis 9, flip down there with me. Scroll down, look at Genesis 9, 20 through 25. 
I want to give you some context as we read along. Here's what it says. Noah began to be a man of the soil. He planted a vineyard. So as you think about the setting now, flood, all that stuff is over. He's just setting up shop. His family are living life, thinking about what they're going to do each day, their vocation, all that kind of stuff. He plants a vineyard. Verse 21, he drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This part doesn't make the coloring books, right? But it's here. We read past the rainbow and this is what we see. Verse 22, it says, And Ham, that's the father of Canaan, one of Noah's sons, he sees the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Now, if you don't know Hebrew, you'll miss this. Literally what's happening in that moment is as we look a little bit deeper in this language, what's happening is that as he tells his two brothers, he's excited to tell them. He's delighted to tell them in the Hebrew. And so as you picture this and try to picture this scene, you have Noah drunk and naked in a tent. Ham walks in and he's like, (laughs) hey guys, come in, you got to see this, right? That's what you need to be picturing. And we see the difference even culturally as we keep reading. His other two brothers, look at verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment. Look at what they do. They lay it on both of their shoulders. They walk backward. They don't even look at their father's nakedness. They cover, they drop the the blankets, they cover his nakedness. So they do it differently. Ham breaks the fifth commandment. He dishonors his father. His brothers do it differently, and we see the contrast. Then we see Noah. He awakes from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be to his brothers. So let me catch you up if you've missed any of this. Here's where we are. Here's the progression, right? You have faithful Noah. Faithful Noah, who Genesis 6 tells us he's walking righteously, blamelessly with God. Faithful Noah. You have faithful Noah who in the midst of a drought and everybody thinks he's crazy. He follows God and he builds a giant boat to endure flood. Faithful Noah. You have as the waters continue to rise, faithful Noah sends out birds and just, and just sees, can we go out yet? I, I don't want to disobey God. I want to be faithful to God and, and wait till the, till the very moment God says we can go. After 370 days, you have faithful Noah, faithful Noah, faithful Noah, and then here you have drunk, naked, camping Noah. That's the progression. And so I want to ask, like, what do we do with that? Right? What do we we learn from that? Right? Here's a few things. Again, if you take notes, you can write these things down. Here's what this shows us. It shows us how relevant Scripture really is. How many of you, you would say, I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but you have done some dumb things in your life? Like anybody? And those of you who didn't raise your hand, you're, you just lied, which is kind of dumb, right? Like you can relate to this. People say, oh, the Bible's not relevant. Have you read it? Like literally for some of y'all like drunk, naked camping, you're like, that's super relevant in my life. Like, how did God know that I did that? Um, it shows you scripture's relevant, right? And Noah, like the hero of the faith, he screwed it up in front of his kids, right? This is what it shows us. Scripture's relevant, right? If you keep reading past the rainbow. Second thing it shows us is no one is beyond brokenness. I think if you did a poll 
in churches and just around the world? Who are, who are the top three Bible characters, most famous Bible characters in all of the Bible? I think Noah would make the top three. I, he, the mural of the ark with the animals poking out the window is on a lot of our church nurseries. Again, I don't know if that's the best idea, but it is. A lot of people know who Noah is, right? A lot of people know the, the great feats and courage and faith of, of Noah, but yet Noah still fell, again, in front of his kids. I, I think about falling all the time, and, I, and I'm sobered by that as a pastor. I think about failing in front of my kids. I am devastatedly scared about that. That's Noah's story, right? No one is beyond brokenness. Here's what that means for you. You learn from leaders, you don't worship them. They're imperfect. Noah is imperfect. Jesus is the only perfect person that was ever used in all of the Bible. Amen? Everybody else is broken, moved by a big God. Everybody today, the person you love to podcast, they're broken. And you may be able to learn from them, and it may help your spiritual life, but they're broken. Don't elevate them. Don't platform them. Don't worship them. You worship God. No one is beyond brokenness. That's what we learn. The next thing we learn is that no one is beyond being used by a big God. No one is beyond brokenness, but also no one is beyond being used by a big God. Noah screws this thing up, but God doesn't cancel his covenant. If you keep reading chapter 10, uh, you won't because it's a genealogy. <laughs> There's all names, but you know what that's a sign of? God's faithfulness through Noah's fragility. All the, be fruitful and multiply. Remember the sacred promise? You start all these names. It starts to happen. In the book of Isaiah, he recounts Noah's story. Do you know what he mentions? Not drunk, naked, camping Noah. He doesn't even mention any of Noah's flaws. He mentions the faithfulness of God. God still uses Noah. Thousands of years later, even today, maybe you're like, I've never heard these parts of Noah's story. But we're looking at his grimy brokenness, but we're also learning from Noah. God used Noah. And God can use you in the midst of your brokenness. You're not too far gone. It's not too late. You need to hear me today. God can use you. He wants, he wants to even use your brokenness. He wants to redeem that conflict in your marriage. He wants to redeem that depression. He wants to redeem that anxiety. He wants to redeem your family drama. I, he does. It's possible in Jesus Christ. He wants to redeem even the darkest crevices of your heart. Even right now, as I talk about those things and you're like, I don't have any of those things. He wants to redeem your religious pride too. He wants to redeem your brokenness. He wants to use you to do great things in his kingdom for his glory and the good of those around him. Do you believe that? That's what the story of Noah teaches us. You need to believe that for your own life. Here's the last thing this shows us. It shows us, don't be like Noah, but be rescued by Jesus Christ. Don't be like Noah, but be rescued by Jesus Christ. See, be like Noah works great when he's walking blamelessly and righteously in Genesis chapter six. It doesn't work as great when he's drunk and naked in a tent. Right? As I tell my kids the children's story of Noah, I, I don't want them to end up drunk and naked in a tent. Amen? Be like Noah breaks down real fast. Here's what doesn't ever break down ever. Be rescued by Jesus Christ. 
Romans chapter 7, go and read it on your own. You see this, this great conflict, this battle that the Apostle Paul, that, that hero of the faith, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with his own brokenness. And he says, hey, I have a, a war that's raging in me that I want to do good things, but there is evil all around me. And he has this culmination, and the culmination isn't like, I'm going to be better. I'm going to white-knuckle this. I'm going to finally fix this. I'm going to get my life together. That's not what Romans 7 goes on to say. What Romans 7 goes on to say, who can rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God who does that through Jesus Christ. And then he moves on in Romans 8 to say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen? That's that's the posture. That's what we learn from this. Don't be like Noah. Be rescued by Jesus Christ. Be redeemed in your brokenness. He wants to use it for his glory, for the joy of other people. That's what we learn. That's what we learned at our staff retreat. Our, our staff retreat, as we, as we do tear down the curtain and just tell you about what happened, we planned some things, we prayed but we also talked about and raised to the surface our brokenness. Our whole team did it, spouses. And it was heavy and ugly and messy. But it was also beautiful and purposeful and powerful. Because what we did is what scripture calls us to do is bring our brokenness to the surface. Like ping pong balls in water, we want to shove all of that down. You know what it wants to do? Rise. And we let it rise. And we ask God to intervene. We ask God to give in his light, in this community, healing to us. Do you know why? Because as your leaders experience that, they can also extend that to you. Because we can just be honest in church, you have brokenness. And so I, I want a team that knows how to deal with their own brokenness in light of a big God so they can help you do the same thing. Amen? Do you want leaders like that? That's what you got. That's the best we got. But I think it's powerful. And I think that's what we learned from Noah. And that's what you need to learn and cling to in your life. In the midst of your brokenness, whatever it is, let it rise and see a big God. Redeem it in your life, but also redeem it in the lives of those around you. That's the picture of Phoenix Bible Church. That's what's on the tote back. Imperfect people moved by the perfect love of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's our hope. That's this story. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for this story. God, I thank you for the lessons that we learned from Noah. God, I pray for these men and women as they consider their brokenness. And God, maybe it is like the, the sins that we think about all the time is really, it's really bad, but maybe it's also like respectful sins like self-righteousness. And God, I pray that you would meet us in whatever brokenness that we have, whatever anxiety or depression or difficulty we're experiencing. God, right now, you would remind us that your covenant doesn't cancel, or your, our, our crisis doesn't cancel your covenant. God, our, our fragility doesn't cancel your faithfulness. But you're with us in the brokenness to redeem us out of the brokenness to help others do the same. What a joy, what a privilege. God, we thank you for that. We declare your goodness in the midst of our brokenness. Father, help us to do that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. <laughs>